So if someone new came to the school, they'd all argue who was going to tell them who I was, which I just used to let them get on with it because I never ever used to say, hi, my name's Louise and I'm the first test you baby. I just used to say, yeah, my name's Louise and Sharp. And I'd say, my, if my mum could do it, anybody could do it. My mum was determined to have a baby. Um, she wasn't giving up, even though sort of she had open wounds and things like that. She carried on and she was determined. Um, it wasn't until I got to my 40th birthday that it just went absolutely mental. Um, and we, we visited, well, I went to four continents in that year. Um, it was a very busy year. Um, and so so basically I then decided that I'd make it sort of my mission to help people and just raise awareness around the world. Hello and welcome to Fertility Tales powered by Nova IVF. I'm your host Simrat and today we have a truly remarkable guest with us, Louise Brown, world's first IVF baby a global advocate of IVF and a symbol of hope for millions, also known as the world's first test tube baby. Louise's birth in 1978 marked a groundbreaking moment in the medical history, transforming the lives of countless individuals and couples who dream of starting or growing their family. Today, we are honoured to have the opportunity to delve deep into Louise's unique life journey, gaining invaluable insights from the very person whose existence became a symbol of hope and scientific achievement. Louise, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Nice to meet you too. Louise, uh, let's start at the very beginning. The decision your parents made was revolutionary and undoubtedly filled with uncertainty. How did they arrive at the decision to go ahead with IVF, navigating what was then a highly debatable topic? So mum had met dad, um, they tried for about 10 years to have a baby um, not being successful. So mum was went to her local GP who diagnosed her with depression. Um, and they said the fact that um, the depression came through not being able to conceive. So they then um, made contact with a specialist, a gynecologist in Bristol where they lived. And um, my mum had a meeting with the gynecologist, had some tests, and they realised that her fallopian tubes were blocked. And they said there was a million to one chance that she'd ever have a baby. But they'd heard of the fantastic work that Bob Edwards, Patrick Steptoe and Jean Purdy were doing up um, in the north of England. And um, she, they said, um, the doc Dr Hinton, which was mum's gynaecologist in Bristol, she said she would get in touch with Patrick Steptoe to see if um, mum could have an appointment with him, right. which um, happened and he, he accepted them onto the programme. My mum was very adamant. She wanted a baby. She was very set. I mean, she had to have operations um, and it was a 400 mile trip up to the north where um, they were doing the treatment. So... Um, at one point, mum came home, she'd had an operation to have her fallopian tubes removed and she came home on the train and she got off at Temple Meads, which is in Bristol, and all her stitches had split open and she was covered in blood. And my dad said, Leslie, no, we're not going through this anymore. We're not doing it. And she said, yes, I am. And she carried on. Growing up as the first IVF baby must have been a unique experience. 
can you share some of your earliest memories and how did your parents approach explaining the concept of IVF to you as a child? Um, so my my earliest memory is actually at Patrick Steptoe's house. We used to visit them, um, not lots of times, but occasionally. And once my mum had had my sister, Natalie, um, we'd gone up to visit Patrick in his house and he had a big swimming pool in the back garden. And sisters, I mean, she was get, she was a younger sister. She was just toddling and she was getting on my nerves. So I threatened to push her into the pool. And um, Patrick stepped, he just heard this booming voice saying, don't you dare. Um, so that's sort of my my first memory. They were like sort of grand, grandfathers to me. Um, also, I have um, lots more memories of um, Bob Edwards, who was the scientist. The only person I don't really remember is Jean Purdy, which is really sad because um, she died, I think, when I was around seven. Um, so um, I didn't really get to know Jean at all, which is um, which I'm sad about. But um, her legacy still lives on. I talk about them all the time. So that's sort of why I do what I do. Um, so I went to school because I, I was born in the July in, in England. We start school in a September. So I was just four when I was starting school and they thought we better sort of try and explain why she has all this media presence and pe like children might ask questions and things like that. So they sat me down and showed me the video of my birth, which is pretty gruesome. I don't know if you've seen it, it's on YouTube. Um, a c-section so they pulled me out and I'm covered in blood and mucus and then um they just basically said that nanny mummy needed help mummy and daddy needed help and um Bob and Patrick and Jean were there to help them and it was just as simple as that they just said I was born in a slightly different way to everybody else um and left it at that and then I picked up the rest um sat watching mum and dad be interviewed um doing sex education at school. Any questions I had, I could ask mum and dad. They were very open about it. Um, so yeah, so I sort of learned, and as I sort of fully understood probably when I was about 14, and it sort of all slots into place, and you think, ah, right, I understand now. <laughs> uh, Louise, uh, being the first person born through this groundbreaking procedure, did you feel any pressure or responsibility, especially in your early years? With, I'm sure there's a lot of media attention that you got at that point of time being the first IVF baby. I didn't sort of really take it all in in my early years. I just sort of did what mum and dad asked me to or people, cameramen or photographers asked me to. Um, I think because when, um, when I got to school age, mum and dad stopped all the interviews. They wanted me to have a normal upbringing at school without it being interrupted because um, back then anybody could walk into a school and do anything. There wasn't the security there is nowadays. Um, so that was one thing they did put in place that I wasn't allowed to be filmed or approached in school. Um, but if Patrick or Bob or Bourne Hall um, wanted us to do any media stuff, we'd do it for them. Um, we just didn't do sort of everyday things. And then... Um, we used to do, as I grew up, we did the odd thing um, if people approached me and I could do it because obviously I was working or things like that. We do it. Um, it wasn't until I got to my 40th birthday that it just went absolutely mental. Um, and we we visited. Well, I went to four continents 
in that year. Um, it was a very busy year. Um, and so, so basically I then decided that I'd make it sort of my mission to help people and just raise awareness around the world. Yeah, with these science and technology and the advancements that have happened, uh, I'm sure being the torchbearer of uh, IVF uh, and being the first uh, IVF baby does hold true value and explaining to people and helping so many couples. Uh, Louise, moving on to your uh, family and social life, how did being the first IVF baby shape your relationships with family and friends? Uh, and were there any challenges or unique experiences perhaps related to media attention or societal perspectives, especially during your school or college days? That's when you started talking about it more openly and after you established that. Um, one of my first memories, um, it was when I first started school and where we lived, um, we were sort of in the middle of a road. So you can come from the bottom or the top. Um, and mum, we'd had, my mum had had my sister by then and she was in a pram. So she was um, taking me to school. We walked out the front door and they sort of, um, two photographers sandwiched us in. So we had one coming up, one coming down. So we went back in. Um, and I had to climb over my back fence and go out with a neighbour in the car so they could take me to school. Um, other than that, they, um, I mean, I was left alone. It was, it was not too bad. Um, another occasion was on my 21st, um, I was having a joint party with my friend because her birthday's the 5th of July. So we told, um, the press wanted to interview me and I said, no, um, I'm not in Bristol. I, I told a little white lie and said I was going to Blackpool for the weekend. So I was then free to have my party with my friends and all my family. So that was, um, that was really good. Um, that's the two sort of main things that stick out in my mind. Um, and I suppose when I had my first son, Cameron, um, they were very, because I had him by C-section, I had him on the 20th of December and he wasn't due till the 2nd of January. So I, um, we managed to fool the press. And we actually, um, I came home from hospital on Christmas day. We actually went out shopping and I went down to register him in the local town before the press even knew I'd had him, which was um, quite good because it gave us those sort of first couple of days in peace and quiet. Um, throughout your life, you've been you've reached many milestones. Uh, what do you consider the most significant? And have you encountered any opportunities uh, that you believe are uniquely linked to your pioneering birth? So the one thing I'm really proud of is um, when my mum was alive, we got invited to go to Sofia in Bulgaria. Um, and I wasn't sure what the aim of the, the visit was, but it's a lovely place. And actually, when we got home... Um, we found out that the government had actually enabled, um, the government were making um, a treatment available to people um, over there so they could have um, one try, I believe. Um, so through that visit, we managed to um, increase the, the, the test tube baby population and make thousands of families happy. That's amazing. Louise, uh, let's talk about your educational and professional journey. How has your path unfolded and have you faced any misconceptions or prejudices related to being an IVF child in these areas? When I first went into school, um, as being four, I was always the youngest of the class. And people would say things like, jokingly, like, how did you get out the test tube? 
and things like that. And I just used to say, a test tube wasn't involved. It was a Petri dish. And um, we all just used to laugh about it because obviously they said, well, why are you called a test tube baby then? And I said, well, that's just a name they've come up with. Um, so that was the main sort of thing that people couldn't get their head around. Other right. than that, other than that, my friends used to all argue if because I grew up all through school and college with all the same people. So if someone new came to the school, they'd all argue who was going to tell them who I was, which I just used to let them get on with it because I never, ever used to say, hi, my name's Louise and I'm the first test you, baby. I just used to say, yeah, my name's Louise and shut up. <laughs> I'm sure uh, people did catch on to that and they did come to know about it because um, you were the, are the first IVF baby. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, your role as an advocate and a spokesperson is incredibly influential. Um, how have you engaged in advocacy work related to fertility or reproductive technology? And what role do you see for individuals born through IVF in raising awareness and reducing the stigma? Not everybody is um, still open and there is still a certain sense of taboo around it uh, for couples who cannot have children. How has your advocacy work helped them? Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, we've, um, when I visited different countries, you can see that there is still a taboo. Men don't talk about it. Um, they don't tell their, their parents or their families. Um, but then on the other hand, it's come so far in so many ways because there are a lot of people that talk about um, IVF now. And that's sort of my main, my main aim is to get people talking about it and to see that, just because you have an IVF baby is not a bad thing. Um, I'm perfectly fine. Um, and that's sort of why. And also as well, I had to keep mum, dad, Patrick, Bob and Jean's legacy alive. That's an another main reason because they've all passed away now. And out of everybody that was in that um, theatre when I was born, I'm the only one alive. So I feel it's my sort of duty and job to help spread the word and get people talking about it. And also help so many couples realize their dreams of parenthood and starting or growing their journey. Yeah, um, it's amazing. I mean, I think if all of them were alive today, they'd be overwhelmed with how far it's come and how many families it has actually helped. Um, when I look back, I just think, I mean, the latest figures I think were 10 million. Um, and that was at Eshray um, last year. So it's amazing. That's truly amazing. Um, Louise, reflecting personally, how do you view the advancements in reproductive medicine since your birth? And looking back, is there anything you wish people understood better about the IVF process or the experiences of those born through it? Um, I'm not a scientist, so I think we need to trust in the doctors and the scientists that are doing the new advancements. I mean, my mum had a natural, hers was natural. Basically, there was one egg, dad's sperm. It was implanted back in and it worked. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many things that can help people now. Um, and I think we need to trust in the doctors and the scientists to take it as far as they need to go. There'll always be advancements. People will always come up with new things. And as long as it's helping the people that really need it, um, I think that's important. And trusting the process, I believe, because uh, so much of um, advancements has happened through uh, the time now. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, mums was like a natural cycle, um, but now you can have injections and just there's just so many different things that can can help, um, which is amazing. That's true. Um, Louise, if you're comfortable sharing, has your experience as the first IVF baby or a test tube baby um, influenced any decisions you've made regarding your family planning? And more broadly, how do you envision the future for individuals conceived through assisted reproductive technology? Um, to tell you the truth, I was all from about 14, I was always asked, would you use IVF if you needed it? Which, of course, my reply was yes. Um, but when it came down to it, I just when I got married in 2004 and we had Cameron in 2006, um, I didn't really, although it was in my mind, I didn't really sort of let it bother me. Um, my sister had already, my sister is actually the first IVF baby to have a baby naturally of her own. Um, so I knew my sister had had children, um, before me. So, um, I didn't sort of think about it. I just sort of got on and, and then was pregnant. So, um, I mean, I suppose I should have thought a bit more about it, but I think it's fantastic now that you can freeze your eggs and do all the different things um, to help assist you if you've got to have treatment for certain illnesses or things like that. I think it's it's just the way it's progressing is and things we can do is amazing. And people do have a little bit more control over their fertility uh, with the new advancements. The main sort of thing now is just getting people to open up earlier um, because a lot of people I think are, are leaving it till till it's too late and then IVF doesn't necessarily work as well as it should do. Yeah. We went to um, Brazil, uh, not Brazil, we went to um, Prague in the Czech Republic um, and they were um, trying to make people sort of 25 um, come come and have, they were doing fertility tests for, for that age group free, um, which I think was a really good idea because if you know earlier there, you can do more about it. Right. Um, in all the conversations that I've had with uh, doctors and fertility specialists uh, in the podcast as well, uh, do encourage people to get a fertility test done in time so that, uh, you know, people can take the right course of treatment during the right time. So I think fertility checks uh, do play a big role in uh, deciding your fertility journey. Definitely. Um, Louise, you've traveled the world and met many facing fertility challenges. What common threads have you noticed and what would be your advice to offer to individuals and couples who are considering IVF and other fertility treatments? Um, mostly the, the thing that holds people back is, again, talking about it. That is the most sort of thing that holds people back. Um, people need to be a bit more open and, and talk because there is a lot of support out there. Back when mum had me, there was nothing. Um, but there are so many support groups and if you just allow yourself to um, go and talk, you might find that you feel better, you, you know what to expect and things like that. I mean, there's even lots of um, support on Facebook and, and different social media outlets. There's just so much now. Um, and I'd say my, if my mum could do it, anybody could do it. My mum was determined to have a baby. Um, she wasn't giving up, even though sort of she had open wounds and things like that. She carried on and she was determined. Um, so if my mum can do it, just don't give up. Keep trying. 
and the conversation around uh, IVF and fertility needs to be more open and without any taboo or stigma to be able to have these conversations so that it's a safe space for people who are trying to have children through IVF. Yeah, definitely. And it's not just women, it's the men as well. Um, they need to be quite open because I think most it is, I mean, there are men that are open out there and, but I think they need to become more open. It's, it yeah. doesn't mean you're any more macho or anything like that. It's just, just talk. It's like a, uh, it's like any other ailment that you would have that you can now treat with the, uh, with the advancements. That needs to be treated as any other disease. Exactly, yeah. Um, Luis, could you talk a little bit about how infertility is a couple's disease and how uh, women should not take the brunt of, you know, not being able to conceive? So, um, obviously, 50% time it's the women, 50% time it's the men. It's not always the woman the the infertility problems with so again talk about it I mean it doesn't make you any less of a man um you just need a little bit of help as does the women side of it um so talking about it um definitely definitely helps that's true um and um, I think as a couple when you make that decision that conversation and that understanding really plays an important role yeah definitely you've got to support each other our society still has tried to make in supporting families through infertility and, you know, uh, assisted reproductive technology. In your view, how has, um, how can we better provide this support? How can we have more conversations going around it? Um, you can try and coach people to talk, but if they don't want to talk, they won't. But hopefully um, most people will. And it, I think it will just help society in general. Yeah, to be able to have those kind of conversations, the difficult conversations and uh, make this world more accepting and more uh, okay with the fact that sometimes you need help. Yeah. Uh, looking at the medical and ethical landscape, um, how do you view the ongoing developments in reproductive technologies? Are there any ethical considerations or uh, privacy concerns that you believe uh, need more attention? Um. Like I said before, I'm not really up on those sort of issues. Um, if I mean, I was quite surprised because obviously everybody knows me and mum and dad didn't really have a choice. Um, but I think when we were um, over in um, the Czech Republic, um, the first baby over there is not known. Um, they, they decided to keep it all quiet. And um, obviously, I think they said he's around, he's a couple of years younger than me, um, but nobody actually knows who it is. Um, yeah. Which I think, I do think parents should tell their children, like I was told, um, there's no shame in it. It just gives the children background um, and it's conversations to have with them. Yeah, and, and also set context to how they were born and how it is normal, how everything, how IVF and uh, the advancements are normal. Yeah, because like, um, if I, I mean, obviously I was told and I, I've known since I can remember, but to sort of find out, I mean, when you're sort of older that you were born as an IVF baby, it could create problems for the person because they could then not trust it and 
I don't know, but I personally, I mean, I've even told my children who I am when, when they were old enough, I sort of explained that nanny and granddad needed help. Um, and it opens up the conversation for people to be open again and talk. Right. That's very important to have those kind of conversations. Yeah. Um, so, Luis, uh, do tell us a little bit about your uh, hobbies and interests. How do you spend your time? What do you enjoy doing? I enjoy swimming, um, taking my boy. I mean, obviously, Cameron's 17 now. He's my eldest, um, but my youngest is 10. So um, he likes to go to ride to the park, riding his bikes. Um, I don't know if you've heard of them, but I'm a massive fan of um, a pop group in England called Take That. Um, you probably haven't heard of them in India, but um, I sort of like to go to their concerts when I can. Um, and I'm just a general mum and wife to my family. And um, how do your children take the, uh, have taken the news of uh, you being the first IVF baby? How do they react to it? What do they have to say about it? Do you have that conversation with them? Um, yeah, they, um, I mean, Cameron, when he was, a, from when he was a baby, um, obviously, because he was my first, um, he had his photograph taken a lot and we went to board hall parties and things like that. So he hates his photograph being taken. Um, but he's sort of interested, he's, in, he's interested in it because he understands Aiden's a bit more, um, doesn't really understand yet, he's 10. So, um, but I, I have told Cameron and I will tell Aiden when I think he's old enough to understand. Yeah, I'm sure when he Googled you, he'll see so much information about you being the torchbearer of IVF. And then he Googles it and shows his friends as well, Cameron. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a... That's a celebrity status in itself in the IVF world. <laughs> yeah. Luis, uh, being the uh, first IVF baby, um, what message or advice would you have for the couples here back in India to talk about IVF? Just talk to your family, friends, counsellors, anybody you can talk to and each other. Um, that's the, talking about it definitely helps and you'll be aware of the things that are happening. I mean, even talk to the doctors and nurses. If you've got any questions, ask them. Um, don't just not say anything and, and wonder what's happening. You need to talk to people, definitely. That's true. The conversation and the awareness does need to, does play a very important role. Yeah. Uh, finally, Louise, uh, you are more than just a symbol of IVF, IVF is success. You are a pioneer. What legacy do you hope to leave for others born through uh, IVF? And how do you feel about the impact you've already made? Um, I'm really proud, like I said, with the Sofia Bulgaria one. Um, anything that enables people to get treatment and help is brilliant. And that is my aim. Um, hopefully, everybody that are, is up there will be very proud of what I'm doing. Um, hopefully they they agree with what i'm doing i can't see that they wouldn't um and it's just to just to keep their names alive and keep everybody talking and people getting the help they need that's true that's true and it's truly remarkable how you've taken the uh, initiative to talk about ivf and to normalize it and to have these conversations for millions and millions of couples across the globe uh louise it's been an absolute privilege to have you with us today 
Uh, your journey is not just your own, but a beacon of hope and a source of inspiration for so many around the world. Thank you for sharing your story and for your tireless advocacy in the realm of fertility and beyond. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, thank you for tuning into Fertility Tales powered by Nova IVF. We hope today's conversation with Louise Brown has offered you insight, inspiration and hope on your fertility journey. Until next time, take care and keep the conversations going. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to Fertility Tales powered by Nova IVF. Thank you for tuning in.